We are headed for Isaiah 53. We're actually going to start in chapter 52. If you need a Bible, wave at your best friend Jim. We're starting in chapter 52 because there's a chapter break in our Bible between chapter 2 and chapter 53. You know that these are man-made. These are of human invention. And where it is doesn't make any sense. John Calvin called it a decapitation. And I think that that's pretty close. But I'm actually not going to teach very much of chapter 2 or chapter 53 tonight. We've been trying for 50 chapters now to keep pretty much of a chapter a week pace. But it's Isaiah 53. I think we can afford to slow down and maybe give it two weeks. Maybe even three weeks. My plan is, is actually prayerfully to not really teach Isaiah 53 tonight, except maybe just a little bit at the very end. Instead tonight, I want to do three things. I want to read it just from beginning to end uninterrupted because it's magnificent. The second thing is I want to consider what we aren't seeing, what Scripture isn't saying, what it's not talking about in these chapters. Because there's, there's some resonance with our study in Romans that I want to point to, that I, that, I, that I want to highlight. And then towards the end, I want to point you towards one thing which you may have seen before. I had not before I undertook uh, to, to study Isaiah through this time. This, this was new to me uh, a few weeks ago. And if you've never seen it, I think you're going to be delighted. But let's start off by reading. Starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? 
for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Just so we're on the same page, who did we just read about? Because when in doubt, say Jesus? No, because here he jumps off the page. His visage marred, verse 4. His beard pulled out. Why didn't the disciples recognize him on the road to Emmaus? His beard had been pulled out, his body mutilated from the scourging. Verse 3, despised and rejected. Verse 4, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5, wounded, bruised, and striped. Oppressed and afflicted. Verse 7, silent before his accusers. Same verse. Led as a lamb to the slaughter. Same verse. Cut off from the land of the living. Verse 8. Killed alongside the wicked. Verse 9. Buried among the rich. Same verse. Sinless himself, same verse. An offering for our sin, verse 10. I said I wasn't going to teach it, and I'm not really, because that much teaches itself, right? You'd have to be blind not to see it. But do you know that some are? There are some who are entirely blind to what seems so very obvious and precious to us. 20 years ago, I was serving in a church that had an opportunity to have Avi Lipkin speak. If you know his name at all, you probably know it from the last several years. He's become active in Israeli politics. He's formed a party in the Knesset, the, the parliament, uh, that is a Judeo-Christian unity party. And his premise and, and the platform of this party is that Jews and Christians need to unite against their common foe, radical Islam, or as he would say, fanatical Islam. Well, back in the 90s, he was writing under an assumed name. He was writing under the name Victor Mordecai. And I'd read one of his books published under that name. He had published under a pen name for, for security reasons, but after September 11th, he, he decided that he needed to be bolder. He needed to be more outspoken against a threat that that he believed had now become obvious, not just to him, but to the entire world. He was no longer a voice crying out in the wilderness, as it were. He was a controversial speaker for our church on a Wednesday night. Incredibly conversant in biblical prophecy. More than anyone I'd ever met at that point. But not a believer. He was not a Messianic Jew, as I mistakenly Assumed He was an Israeli, born in the United States, but, but he'd lived in, in Israel for the last, I don't know, 10 or 20 years, and realized, living there, that Jews and Christians had common interests, but he wasn't one. He wasn't a Messianic Jew, he wasn't a Christian, he wasn't born again, and still isn't. 
What astonished me as I listened to him was his command of Scripture. One verse after another, one prophecy after another, almost all of them having to do with Messiah. We said a week or two ago, why do we study prophecy? Among other reasons, prophecy teaches us Jesus. Jesus is the subject of every major biblical prophecy. Prophecy after prophecy, pointing to the Messiah. But he wasn't a believer that Jesus was that Messiah. I had an opportunity to speak with him afterwards because I was in charge of security, which meant that I called up my friends who were cops and military in the fellowship, and I said, hey, I need you to do stuff while I sit and drink coffee because I don't know about security. <laughs> so we sat while he was waiting for his ride, and I had the opportunity to ask, and I, and I did it with a certain amount of trepidation. And I said, forgive me, because I'm sure that this is, if not the number one question you get, it's got to be top five. He said, you want to know what I do with Isaiah 53? I hate being predictable, but that was my question. And I said, I said yeah. He said, it's a perfectly reasonable question. He said, yes, I get it a lot. Very, very gracious. He said, that doesn't make it unreasonable. And then he paused for a long time, and I wondered if he was going to say anything else. And, and, and it seemed like five minutes. It was probably just, I don't know, 60, 90 seconds. But he paused for, for what felt like an eternity. And he said, I just can't get there. I know what you think you see. But I don't see the Messiah. I said, what do you see? He said, I see Israel. And it was the first time that I had encountered personally, up, up close and personal, directly, the spiritual blindness of Israel. If that's not a concept that you're familiar with, we're coming up to it in Romans. If you're visiting with us, we're studying through Romans on Sundays. We're studying through Isaiah here on Wednesdays. If, if this is a new idea, let me give you a very quick preview, or for some of you, a quick refresher, those of you who have encountered this before. When Jesus came, he went to the Jew first. He went to his own, we read in John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own received him not, did not receive him in the New King James. And when it became clear, when he'd given them every opportunity to receive him, when he'd fulfilled so many prophecies, when he'd performed so many miracles, signature miracles that Isaiah, among others, told Israel, look for this. Healing blindness, for example. That is a signature miracle that had never happened in the history of Israel. When Jesus did it, not once, but more than once, it was things like that. It was the fulfillment of prophecy after prophecy that should have con convinced them he was their Messiah. When they refused to acknowledge that, when they rejected him, when he saw they were rejecting him and were not going to change their minds, he said to the chief priests and Pharisees, Matthew 21, verse 43, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation that will bear fruit. Matthew 21, 43. The kingdom will be taken from you, from Israel, from the Jewish people. It'll be given to the Gentiles. 
How does that story play out? Flip over to Romans, if you don't mind. Keep a finger in Isaiah 53. We're coming back. Maybe you have a bookmark in Romans from the weekend. When we get to Romans 10 in another week or two, Paul is going to remind us that Israel rejected the righteousness of God in the person of Christ Jesus. Verse 3, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Peter says much the same thing. 1 Peter 2.8, they stumbled at the stumbling stone. They tripped over Jesus. They couldn't get past him. Paul talks about this in Romans 10. And, and, and he talks about it leading up to his exclamation in Romans 11 verse 1 that we've called out the last two weeks. Has God cast his people away forever? Okay, they couldn't see Jesus. They wouldn't see Jesus. They didn't see Jesus. They rejected Jesus. Is that forever and always? Is that unchangeable and irreversible? Paul answers his own question, certainly not. And like I said, we've been talking about that on a weekly basis, not just Sundays, but, but Wednesdays. That God's not done with Israel. We see it every week in Isaiah, don't we? The return of the people to the land, the restoration of the people to their God. God's not done with Israel. He hasn't cast them away forever. But look down at Romans 11.25. He has blinded them temporarily. Paul says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We often talk about that in connection with the church age that God during this season has put Israel on the shelf. His focus during this church age is the nations, is the church that, that is primarily of the Gentiles. Are there a handful of Jewish people that are part of the body of Christ during this dispensation? Yes, you probably know some personally. I know several personally. But by and large, God has set Israel on the shelf that the gospel would go forth among the Gentiles. In fact, part of his purpose during this, this season is that we would make the Jew jealous of what we have. It's our turn to bear fruit. And during this season, the Jewish people, by and large, it's sort of like Proverbs. Proverbs aren't universally true for everyone in every circumstance all the time, but they're mostly true for most of us most of the time in most situations. So too, blindness has come upon most Jews most of the time in most situations in respect to the person of Jesus Christ. Most Jews in the world today, look at Isaiah 53 that we just read. And what's obvious to us, screamingly obvious, when I said I'm not really going to teach it tonight, your response was, well, you don't need to. It teaches itself. It falls off the page. Not only that they 
Do they not see it? They cannot see it because God has decreed that they wouldn't. So what do they do with Isaiah 53? Well, most commonly, if you ask an observant Jew, a believing Jew in the sense that they believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they believe in the Hebrew Bible, what we would call the the Old Testament, they would say what Avi Lipkin said to me. Well, Isaiah 53 is about Israel. Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant pictured, described in Isaiah 53, describes the suffering of Israel at the hand of the Gentiles. What's interesting, that's a relatively new interpretation. By relatively I knew, I mean since the year 1050 A.D. So only for the last thousand years or so. <laughs> but if you think about it, for ten centuries after Jesus, rabbis continued to read Isaiah 53 as speaking of a Messiah. Oh yeah, that's about the Messiah. It's just not Jesus. He wasn't him. But what happened over those thousand years is that people like us would ask questions like I asked, how is it not Jesus? How how, how do you not see it? It got confusing. It got controversial. They didn't like the conversation. And so many synagogues, if you go to an Orthodox synagogue or even a conservative or a reformed synagogue today will ignore the passage as they read through the Bible according to their schedule. Jews have a liturgical schedule similar to the Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church. When they come to Isaiah 53 in their schedule, they skip over it. You ever been to a building that didn't have a 13th floor? Or, or, or maybe you've been on an airplane that didn't have a 13th row? because people are superstitious and so we don't want to to, to have the whole hubbub. We don't want people saying, well, if if I'm going to be on the 13th floor, I want you to give give me a break on the lease. I don't want to sit in row 13. Somebody's got to trade with me. I'm not going to. They don't want the argument, so they just skip over it. They go from the middle of Isaiah 52 right into Isaiah 54. But those that do read it, read it as Israel. What's remarkable is even without the benefit of our New Testament eyes, even if we had never read the gospel accounts, we should still be able to see that Isaiah 53 is clearly messianic, clearly referring to an individual rather than a nation, an individual who would redeem Israel and not the nation Israel itself. Flip back to Isaiah 53. We're done in Romans for tonight. Let's talk about how you can get there without reference to the Gospels. Isaiah 53, verse 6. Except by that I mean Isaiah 53, verse 1. I can't read my own writing. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord, the arm of Yahweh. Remember when we see Lord in that small capital type? That's just a transposition for the name of the Lord, the Tetragamatron, the YHWH, that we probably wrongly pronounced Yahweh. The arm of the Lord, Isaiah 53, verse 1. What do we know about the arm? 
What do we know looking backward, not forward? Isaiah's been talking about the arm of the Lord since this new section of Isaiah began in chapter 40. Remember, there was, a, there was a, a, a thematic break, and we've talked a lot about that, between chapter 39 and 40. There's the Assyrian section, now we're in the Babylonian section. Since, since we've been in this new section, look back at Isaiah 40. This title, this, this name, this reference has come up several times. Isaiah 40, verse 10 Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. So, the first thing that we picked up about the arm of the Lord is that he would be a ruler, that he would govern. Flip forward to Isaiah 51. We were there just a couple weeks ago. What a high impact chapter that was. Isaiah 51, verse 5. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth. My arms will judge the people, the coastland will wait upon me, and on my arm, singular, they will trust. So the arm rules, the arm is trusted. Same chapter, go down to verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? We said a couple weeks ago that was a reference to Egypt. So the arm is one who governs, who is trusted, and who redeems and delivers. Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? Also referring to the arm. Are you not the one who engineered the exodus, in other words? And then we get to the verse that we just read. But go back. Go back to verse 13. And let's take a run at it. Isaiah 52, 13. We're going to start there. We'll make a run to chapter 1. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled. Astonished visage, form, sprinkle, kings. Who is believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What did we just discover? The servant and the arm are one and the same. Two names, two titles of the same person. Remember chapter 40 to 48 talked about a servant who turned out to be Cyrus. Cyrus was named chapter 40 to 48. More than a century before he was born, his name appeared in prophecy. But on the other side of 48, we said there's one greater than Cyrus. The Lord began speaking about one. Cyrus was a redeemer in the short term. He was the one used of God to release the exiles from Judah held captive in Babylon and send them home. But starting in chapter 49, the discussion shifted to another servant, one greater than Cyrus. Put eyes on Isaiah 49. Let's refresh our memory about that. Isaiah 49, verse 4. Then I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. So the servant is one who is rejected. He labored for nothing. He bore no fruit. 
49, verse 6. Indeed, he says, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you shall be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So the servants, one rejected by Israel, sent to the Gentiles. Go to chapter 50. What else do we know about the servant? Verse 6, we know the servant will suffer torture. Chapter 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And go to 52. We looked at this last week, Isaiah 52, verse 3. For thus says the Lord, you've sold yourself for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. So he's one who redeems but without money. Rejected by Israel sent to the Gentiles, tortured, a redeemer who doesn't use money for redemption. Now you and I say, Jesus, hello. But even if you don't see that, even if you're somehow blinded to that, doesn't that sound like an individual? An individual deliverer, a personal Messiah. I don't know, I think it could still be Israel. You could say that Israel was sent to the Gentiles. You could say that Israel was tortured. You could say that Israel was redeemed because they didn't pay Cyrus to send them back. Okay. But you're still stuck on chapter 49, verse 4. If the servant is Israel, how can Israel be rejected by Israel? It doesn't sound like the nation Israel suffering at the hands of the Gentiles. And I realize we here tonight don't need to be convinced. But it doesn't hold together. It's it's a testimony to the blindness of the Jewish people that, that they can stare at something that's so clearly at odds with their interpretation and cling to it. Here's a few more reasons that it doesn't hold together. Isaiah 53, we'll go back to our text tonight. And again, we'll unpack it verse by verse next week. But Isaiah 53, verse 2, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no former comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we shall desire him. Okay, if Isaiah is speaking then who is we? We to Isaiah would be the Jewish people. If he is Israel, if Israel is the servant, then grammatically it makes no sense. If he is Israel, then we can't be Israel. Or you get nonsense. If Israel shall grow up before Israel as a tender plant and as a root on of dry ground, Israel has no former cleanliness. And when Israel sees Israel, there's no beauty that Israel should desire Israel. And the observant Jew has a response to that, but it's grammatical gymnastics. Similar problems when we get to verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Okay, cut off. 
you probably know from hearing Isaiah 53 being taught before or from studying it on your own, cut off is an idiom for what? Killed. When was Israel killed? When was Israel as a nation put to death? The miracle of Israel is, is that it never has been. Israel has survived attempt after attempt after attempt of, at, at, at genocide. With miracle after miracle after miracle, God has preserved and protected Israel. So verse 8 doesn't hold together either. Israel has never been cut off. Go back to verse 7. We'll do just one more. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Israel has been persecuted. And we can sympathize with the rabbis who want to read their suffering as a people into Scripture. We can, we can empathize, right? What people group has, has endured what Israel has endured? I can't think of any. But we shouldn't let that lead us into misinterpretation. Verse 7. Let as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. When has Israel ever been persecuted willingly? When has Israel ever been silent in the face of persecution? Not ever. Could keep going. But like I said, you don't need to be convinced. If you're really interested in this, Messianic Jews get especially passionate about Isaiah 53. Understandably, right? They can give you more than a dozen reasons why it simply cannot, must not be Israel. There's more than enough here, though, to show that the arm, the servant, is a person, not a nation. And like I said, it's a testimony to the depth to, to the severity of Jewish blindness. But one day it's going to change. They're blinded, we read in Romans 11.25, until what? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's a number of souls that will be saved during this age of grace. We don't know the number. I don't know if Jesus knows the number. Jesus doesn't know something? Well, he, he, he said to the disciples, it's not for you know, to know the times or the seasons that the Father himself is reserved unto his understanding. Rabbit trail. There's a number. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, when everyone who is going to be saved during the church age has been saved, the Father is going to say to the Son, it's time. Go get your bride. And when the number of the Gentiles has come in, and when we're raptured out of here, the blindness of the Jews will be lifted. That's not necessarily accompanied by new dramatic revelation. It might be, but it might also be just the absence of darkness. 
It, it might be the removal of the scales from their collective eyes. But what we know, what we see in Scripture is during the tribulation, they'll be able to see, they'll be able to hear, they'll be able to consider the truth claims of Christ, they'll be able to decide. That's the purpose of the tribulation, right? To chasten unbelieving Israel to repentance. Which brings me back to our text one more time. Look once more at Isaiah 53, and specifically the first nine verses. I told you I wanted to point out something that I hadn't seen before a couple months ago. Maybe you've seen this, maybe you haven't. If you haven't, we're used to reading this at Easter, at Resurrection on Good Friday, on Resurrection Sunday. And we're used to seeing ourselves as the beneficiaries of Christ's crucifixion. And that's a great application. What's the interpretation of these nine verses? You want to blow your mind? Read this as the national confession of Israel. At the end of the tribulation, at the end of seven years of judgment, of chastening, of devastation, when the remnant of Israel cries out, I think from Petra, we'll talk about that in chapter 63, when the remnant of Israel cries out, Jesus says in, 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 in Matthew 23, he says, you'll, you'll see me no more until, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The first nine verses of Isaiah 53 is the believing remnant of Israel doing that. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no former comeliness, that when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He wasn't the Messiah we were looking for. Despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We did not want to see him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. We should have said, it's the Messiah, the Mashiach Nagid, the promised one, the anointed one, and we didn't. Surely he has borne our grief. Whose grief? Israel's griefs. And carried our sorrows. He didn't just die for the Gentiles, he died for Israel. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Israel looked at Jesus on the cross and said he's a criminal. Of course this is happening to him. God is judging him. But that's not what was happening at all. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by our stripes, believing Israel says, we are healed. The stripes we inflicted. The crucifixion that we asked for will be for our salvation. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Before the mock trial, before the farcical trial, before the high priest, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He could have done what he did in Luke 4. When they tried to throw him over a cliff, he could have said, not today. 
but he meekly went with his oppressors. He opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people. God's people, Israel. He was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but the, with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Doesn't that take on a whole different dimension? And like when he said a, a, a couple Sundays ago, doesn't that make Jesus even greater in our eyes? And it doesn't make the mercy of God even more extreme when we realize that he didn't turn his back on Israel, that he didn't say, you can never be forgiven for what you've done. He didn't say there's no redemption for you, there's no future for you. No, he said there's forgiveness even for you. And the most beautiful words ever written, in, in my opinion, the most beautiful words ever written describing the redemption that Jesus purchased at the cross, prophetically given by Isaiah to be uttered by his people. Jesus, thank you for the beauty and the horror. Just the enormity of your word. That your word is able to picture so much, capture so much, convey so much, and 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 it's so deep. There is so much there. Layers upon layers, wheels within wheels, dimensions opening gateways to other dimensions. We've said so often in Isaiah that we know we're barely scratching the surface of the truth that's contained in these words, but oh, what, what a joy it is to, to study and persevere and have your Holy Spirit uncover these things. It's the joy of God to conceal a matter, the joy of kings to seek it out. We've, you've made us kings and priests. Thank you for the joy of your word, the hope that it gives, the mercy that it testifies to, the love that pours off every single page. Because Jesus is on every page. The volume of the book is written of you. And you wrote it for us. Thank you, Lord.